Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking UCAS end of cycle data, new hardship funds for students, new research into the student experience and the free speech debate on campus. Um, but I, I actually think that DK's point just there about the fact that there there maybe isn't enough speech occurring on campus is something that's perhaps more interesting to focus on. How do we get more events, more speakers, more opportunities for students, whether they're doing nursing or, you know, engineering or artificial intelligence, that they get to hear speakers from different perspectives and different points of view and, and, and are exposed to that. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from Wonky's extremely professional recording studio. <clears throat> uh, and in Sheffield, we have Natalie Day, Head of Policy and Strategy at Sheffield Hallam University. Natalie, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight of the week was some snow here in Sheffield. On Tuesday morning, unexpectedly, we woke up to a huge, well, huge for Sheffield, a quite a significant amount of snow, and that meant that my homeschooling for the day was able to be outside and making... We were made four snowmen before 9am, so that was a good day's work done early in the morning. Lovely. It definitely helped break the lockdown tedium, the snow, this, this last week. Um, and uh, in London, we have Alistair Jarvis, Chief Executive of, of Universities UK. Alistair, your highlight of the week. Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, my highlight has got to be the, the increasing vaccination numbers at the moment. And just starting to get that kind of feeling, I hope, that we might get back to having um, some fun this summer and actually be able to, to have a bit more freedom again. So really good to see that kind of rise in vaccination numbers. I know, right. And credit to everyone who's working on that. Absolutely staggering effort. Um, and somewhere deep in the West Country, no one quite knows where, we have David Kernahan, Wonky's Associate Editor. DK, your highlight of the week. Well, it emerged at the back end of the last year that I have uh, literally never watched uh, West Wing. And I mean, obviously, this meant that the National um, Licensing Council for Wonks had to actually reassess me. Uh, so I've been uh, blasting through a box set of West Wing and it's bloody fantastic, isn't it? It is fantastic, and fun fact, uh, definitely helped popularise the word wonk in, in US political conversations, which then got imported over here shortly before we created Wonky. So there's a, there's a, there's a direct line. D- exactly DK, so. the thing about the West Wing, it, it's so helpful that if you're in, trying to make a decision and you just can't decide what to do, you just think, what would President Bartlett do? And it's just a sort of great way to guide you to make a decision. Or what would Leo do? Is a, is a <laughs> yes. Note on the yeah. WWLD. That's uh, what would Leo do? <laughs> Everyone had their post-it notes on their screens for the, the noughties. Education is the silver bullet. Education is everything. We don't need little changes. We need gigantic, monumental changes. Schools should be palaces. The competition for the best teachers should be fierce. They should be making six-figure salaries. Schools should be incredibly expensive for government and absolutely free of charge to its citizens, just like national defense. That's my position. Right. We start this week with a big release of uh, UCAS's end-of-cycle data, uh, DK, talk us through the highlights, please. 
Well, this was always going to be an interesting one. We're seeing the impacts of students applying to university and accepting places uh, during the the uh, pandemic. Uh, a lot of the stories were out there before. We have seen every university in the Russell Group has uh, grown their intake, but there's um, a couple of other people have uh, grown too. I'd like to flag uh, Buckinghamshire New University and Leeds Trinity University, who have had a spectacularly good year. Uh, there are a few that are doing less well. Again, we expected it would be larger post-92s, and to an extent we see that. But there's also a couple of surprises. I was surprised to see a fairly large decline at the University of Surrey and at the University of uh, Coventry. Uh, but probably the uh, biggest decline I spotted was at uh, Regents University, which has seen a huge drop in uh, recruitment. Um, apart from that, we were expecting to see an increased regionality and seeing students apply to their local university more so than in previous years. That's not really happened. But the but the, the, the two big stories everybody's talking about, the first is the continued decline of language students and a wider decline in humanities uh, students at the expense of STEM and technology courses. And the sheer scale of the amount of unconditional offers that were made in the 2020 cycle before uh, there was the clampdown from firstly DFE and then OFS. Uh, there are some universities that made the overwhelming majority of their offers were with an unconditional component. So that is absolutely worth taking a look. It's all plotted on the site. So if you've not done so already, get yourself there and have a play. So uh, I was struck by the, the really big swings up and the really big swings down. Alistair, this was exactly the kind of volatility that everyone wanted to avoid this year. How did we get here? So yeah, I mean it was a, a hugely volatile admissions round, and and um, you know we saw some universities dropping their usual entry grades. We saw greater use of contextual offers. We saw greater use of unconditional offers, and then of course we saw lots of late movement in student numbers. Uh, you know, following the government's U-turn on on centre grades, um, and I mean frankly, I don't, I don't think it's surprising we've seen this 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 odd admissions picture with lots of volatility, given um, you know the completely sort of tumultuous summer we had. Um, I, I'm I'm hoping that this is not going to be become the norm, um, but it certainly saw much bigger swings than we'd we'd normally um, normally see. I mean, are, are you concerned for speaking with your, your UK hat on? Are you concerned for those universities that have have seen such dramatic falls? You know, in the forties and fifty percent. Yeah, it's it's always concerning to see falls of that that kind of level. I, I mean, I think what what really becomes difficult is if you see those falls over a number of years. Uh, I mean, universities are, as you know, are, are resilient, they're resilient, they're adaptable, they, they will usually be able to get through um, a bad year. Um, I think what you what you won't, don't want is universities that see fall after fall after fall over a, over a period of time. Mm. I guess my, my big concern is a lot of those big numbers are on universities that have already been seeing, seeing year on year falls, probably since the, the lifting of the, the student numbers cap. So, you know, tot totting it all up, it's looking pretty bleak, I think, for a number of universities. I, I wonder also if, whether it's Safe. I mean, Natalie, I haven't looked at, at, at your institution's numbers this morning, but I mean, I, I wonder if, it, you know, is it, on the flip side, is it, is it safe to grow a university by 50% in one year? I mean, any kind of university. Well, we haven't had that sort of growth, I'm afraid, in our, uh, in our numbers. Um, but we've had, a, you know, a steady performance. And, uh, but, you know, I think the volatility in the market is, is certainly something that, you know, we need to really consider what's happened this year and what, what are some of the lessons from what has been an extraordinary year. I mean, there's, I think 
you know, understanding the impact of things like only being able to attend virtual open days, what's been the impact of universities that might have been in lockdown during clearing processes, you know, there's, there's and also the, the inability to kind of get into schools and talk to students, what sort of impact is that? has that had on applications. I think the other thing that is really interesting in here that DK referred to is that we didn't see students preferring to stay kind of closer to home in, in the way I think many of us expected that to happen. I mean, that might just be they're really sick of being with mum and dad and they, they, they're desperate to get out more than they might have been. But it, I did think we would see a bit more of an uplift in that than, than the numbers are showing, uh, at least initially. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, and, and where are we now with with unconditional offers, Alistair? What is the what is what is the deal? Because we had we saw clearly so many, and for obvious reasons, uh, in this last cycle. What do you think is going to happen this year? Well, um, yeah, we saw we saw more unconditional offers. We saw a lot of a lot of universities uh, trying to reduce the pressure on students, trying to make judgments on potential rather than on grades, and therefore we saw a, a rise in unconditional offers. I mean, my, my my view is that conditional unconditional offers should not be used. And I think we need to see the back of them. They need to need to stop. And actually, unconditional offers, I would like to see a significant fall. And I think there's only a limited number of uh, scenarios where there's a clear case of them being in the interest of students. And I mean, generally, I think admissions practices, they need to be transparent. They need to be clearly in the interest of students. And for me, on unconditional offers, if you don't already hold the required grades or you don't ha- you're not applying to a course which has been informed by something like an interview, an audition or other sort of submission of portfolio or something like that, I, I just can't really see... A strong case for an unconditional offer being in the interest of students. So I, I would say that their use should be far more limited than it currently is. And DK, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that seeing this data kind of laid out this year could impact on um, provider strategy for, for this application cycle? Um, obviously, there, would, there are a fair number of providers that would be looking to recruit and recruit quickly to sustain their operations at their uh, current size. Um, as you know, as you know, in this uh, system, in uh, many cases, provider finance are qu- finance is quite closely coupled to the the uh, choices eighteen year olds are making. So there will be some uh, providers that will really uh, really double down on trying to recruit as many students as they can. I think we are seeing in a few places uh, uh, providers are starting to think strategically about the kind of provider they would like to be, the kind of offer they would like to make, especially uh, locally. Uh, This is broadly sensible in that it means each university is thinking more about specialising in the stuff that it offers that uh, nobody else can rather than trying to compete with everybody else on everything. But it is going to be a painful process. We've already seen a number of cases where departments and courses are being downsized and uh, closed. And these are long and painful and complex things that need to be done. And I would hope that although this uh, data is important, that it's not the only source by which uh, senior managers are making these uh, decisions. Mm. I mean, it is clearly going to be painful. And as you say, we've seen we've seen lots of this already. And um, just on, on the social media, you can see some of the, the kind of backlash against the, the portfolio reviews going on. I mean, N- Natalie, what, what extent do you think um, the sector is going to have to slightly reconfigure? Because it, we, we can't, we can't just let, you know, a, a university that does, you know, really valuable stuff for its students, um, has a really critical research. We can't, we can't just let them fall over uh, because of a um, couple of unstable recruitment rounds um, when there are other people doing so well. It's just, it doesn't seem really in the spirit of, um, of, of higher education. I know the government have handed us, you know, handed the sector a, a market to, to, to kind of to try and navigate. But at the same time, you know, 
I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find a sector leader that would would actively want um, even a competitor to to ultimately ultimately fail, right? No, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's why back in March, uh, Chris Husbands and I called for you know an urgent sort of review of these admissions practices just to try and inject some of this stability in the sector uh, because it's absolutely right that it's not in anybody's interest, particularly in the towns and regions in which these universities are based where they're huge employers and huge sort of centres of skill development, etc., for a university to, to fail. So we do need to think, look at the way the admission system is working because, you know, we need to sort of try and avoid this sort of volatility in the admissions processes because, it, you know, it it does have just such huge impacts on regional economies, regional projections, et cetera, that, you know, we just, I don't think, you know, any government or, you know, if, if, if given the choice, will want anything like that to happen. There were, of course, supposed to be student number controls this year, which we are lost in the exam shambles. I think one of the fascinating things that I've yet to do with this data is to see what kind of an impact these caps would have had. Are there institutions that are growing outside of the uh, projection plus uh, 5%? And if there are, where would those students likely have gone if they didn't end up at their first uh, choice? There's a lot of counterfactuals that we can run here. And I think there's a lot more that is genuinely fascinating is going to come out with this data. Mm. Well, I guess that's your, your afternoon sort of decay. Oh, uh, yes. Alistair, would you be in favour of bringing back student number controls for this year? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think that I think there was a good case last year for student number controls. I think there, there was so much volatility. And, and I mean, we'll see what DK's analysis um, comes up with. But I would imagine if the number of controls had stayed in, we would have seen at least uh, um, some reduction in that volatility. Um, so I think there was a strong case last year. Um, I don't think that student numbers controls is something that is a is a positive thing for the sector. I don't think it's positive for students because I think it ultimately um, you know re- re- um, reduces student choice and, and re- reduces some of their options. So so I'm I'm. My starting point is always to be sceptical and, frankly, against student number controls. I think there were some specific circumstances last year that it seemed to make sense, but I don't think we should just rush back into them this year. Um, I, I'm also really worried that you know you start to set a precedence and you create you create a system where um, you know the government looks at it and thinks actually number controls are, are something we want to keep for the, the longer term. And to delve deeper into all this data we're talking about and these issues, uh, you can find links in the show notes and across wonky.com uh, this week. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, Claire Adams here, Head of University Success at Handshake UK. I have a piece on Wonky this week that builds on a report Handshake have just launched, exploring how technology can support students and graduates to build meaningful connections that are vital for career success. As we all know, career success is so much more than just a salary or graduate level employment. Career success is unique to each and every one of us and is unique to each and every student. And each individual student's starting point is just as unique. The piece explores some of the challenges students, universities and employers face when trying to address the inequalities that exist and discusses how Web 2.0, the social web, has driven a new wave of education and recruitment technology focused on building communities and connections at scale that facilitate social learning, not just the provision of information. Given the potential changes to how OFS will benchmark employment outcomes in the future and the complexities and inequalities of how COVID has impacted students, universities and employers, 
the piece highlights technology's role in levelling the playing field on all three sides. Right. Earlier this week, the government announced new financial support for students. Natalie, what are your thoughts about this? So that's right, Mark. Earlier this week, Michelle Donnellan announced a further $50 million, uh, in hardship support for university students. So that brings the total to $70 million. It actually works out to about £45 per student or about £200 for the poorest fifth of students if we wanted to break the numbers in, in different ways as, as is a DK sort of style. The money will be distributed through the Office for Students and of course universities welcome this funding but I think there is a genuine question about whether this is really enough given you know the scale of challenges that students are facing. That's right. I mean DK um, we've been a bit critical of the of the magic money trig twig um, on um, on the site do you think this goes far enough it's as has been so often the case during this pandemic it's been too little and too late from uh, Westminster it uh, compares really really poorly with packages in Wales and Scotland um, it relies on a mechanism of exceptionality that we're supporting students that are having exceptional problems rather than taking into the account that this is a widespread national issue. Everybody is suffering with the uh, pandemic. Everybody is struggling to find part-time work. Everybody has got more costs, um, but it doesn't take any account of any of that. I think, I mean, there was um, an urgent question from Paul uh, Blomfield in the House of Commons yesterday, which is an instructive uh, uh, watch. There's a fantastic uh, Twitter thread that uh, Jim Dickinson has done that he'll probably eventually write up as a one corner. But it's just the same old answers again and again. And it just feels like the government is not taking account of the uh, of the universality of this issue and is still seeing it as little uh, pockets of problems that they can fix. It's much more than that. Uh, so let me, let me test the theory, which is that, that with you, that DFE obviously don't get to make spending decisions and all of this has to go past the Treasury in particular. And given that w- what we see is just a sort of little bits kind of come out um, over a, a long period of time, it kind of leads me to the conclusion that the Treasury isn't convinced and a year into this, definitely not convinced that the sector via students or via providers needs kind of wholesale support in the in the pandemic. Do you, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely fair to say that I think it's really tough to get any money out of the Treasury at the moment. Um, they're being, the demand's coming from all directions to the Treasury. And I think they see other sectors as having greater demands than the university sector. And I think there's a sort of feeling in the Treasury that, that universities can can soak up some of the extra costs, can cope with some of the income falls and, and can, can sort out their own problems rather than needing Treasury support. Um, and and I, mean, I, I, don't, I think that's a poor reading of the situation, but I think that's frankly where Treasury are at the moment. And, you know, DfE are struggling to get the the money they need from from Treasury. I mean, the the I think we'd all have preferred the the Welsh package that was far more generous. Um, I mean, let, let's not sniff at fifty million. It is going to be helpful. Let's get it out to students who need it most. But I think we've got to recognise that demand's going to grow longer. The restrictions remain, and more's going to be more money's going to be needed. Um, I mean, we we just recently done a survey on on uh, student hardship issues, and three quarters of our universities. Um, certainly had increases in hardship funding requests, many 50% or more. I mean, actually, this 50 million will go a long way to to meeting um, a lot of those requests. But my, my concern is that that's only the current request and they're just more coming in week in, week out, month in, month out. Um, I, I was really struck by, struck by um, uh, DK's comment that I think um, 
this is just uh, what's frustrating is this narrow focus actually on hardship funding. So absolutely, hardship funding actually was the thing we put top of our list, and we said to government, you know, the first thing you should do is get some more cash into students' pockets. There's some real need out there. Universities are spending more, but we need some government help. So I am pleased we've seen that. But we've got to see greater acknowledgement that hardship is only one of the many, many pressures facing students, and there needs to be other ta- other interventions to address the other challenges. And I'm just concerned at the moment that there's all this kind of pointing towards this 50 million as if it sounds like it's the solution. And of course, it only addresses one small part of a wider problem. And I'm going to just, just, you know, we're in danger of focusing again on just one narrow part. The thing I'm most concerned about at the moment is student well-being and mental health. And, you know, I think looking just at the cash in pockets of students just isn't anywhere near enough. Can I just jump in on that, Mark? Because I completely agree with that. I think one of the things that the that we're kind of completely missing in the conversation here is the kind of issue of intergenerational inequality that we're going to see potentially with this bunch of students that are really getting a a bit of a raw deal. They're having to, you know, put their lives on hold for for COVID. They're going to go into a a really sluggish and and devastated economy that, you know, government resources and everything is going to be directed to try and sort of resolve the issues of the pandemic for much of their, their working lives. And, you know, that's going to have implications for their job prospects, for their pensions, for, you know, all sorts of aspects of their life that is going to mean that, you know, there's some real genuine challenges around intergenerational inequality that we really need to do some serious thinking. So I support the the, the hardship funds, absolutely. But I also think we need to sort of soon and quickly shift gear to be thinking about sort of, you know, opportunity funds might not be the right term, but something to really help graduates of 2020, graduates of 2021 to get, a, you know, a leg up in the employment market in, in terms of, you know, placements and things that they will have had to put on hold because of, you know, the, the extraordinary circumstances of the pandemic. No, just, just I mean, I, I completely support that. I mean, the thing actually I've been pushing the most on in recent weeks and pushing government on is this concern that all students are missing out on parts of their wider experience. You know, it's a much narrower experience in the pandemic. And there needs to be serious efforts, certainly by universities, but also with government backing, to make sure that when we do get students back, we offer them the widest possible experience that they can. Because there's so much of students' development that is outside the core part of their course, and it's the extracurricular activities. And we've got to do all we can to provide them, you know, with sort of catch up on that wider experience. There was a group of vice chancellors that, that also this week uh, made the case that we should be writing off um, or, or cutting interest rates for um, this year's uh, this year's graduation cohort or the students going in. I can't remember exactly what it was, but that seems to me to be one of those measures that's quite far away from actually putting um, money in, in in students' pocket. I wonder whether that was a call that that you supported. I've, I noted that UK's name wasn't on the uh, on 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 that on that call. I mean, I think it's it's good to have different ideas out there for things that could could help. I mean, I, I, I would prioritise getting cash into students' pockets um, above. Both say interest rate loan write off. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I think there's you know there is serious hardship, there's serious challenges on, on well being. Um, I think you know getting that money to students has got to be the the priority. And then actually after that, I would look at um, you know the lost experience and how we can make up for that, rather than necessarily you know writing off bits of interest or, or loans further down the line, which will only help you know people in sort of further in the future. Mm. And while we have you, because you're at the hard end of these these discussions with, with government, um, I mean, you, you, I think you're right to say that the demands for, for extra money are going to only increase the longer that restrictions last. And essentially, you know, when it becomes clear that, that so much of this academic year or even vast bulk of it for so many is, is essentially going to be um, online or hybrid. For example, students aren't going to be able to move back into accommodation, things like that, um, in, a, in a timely way to, to, to finish this year in person. 
or that you know as, as many models would suggest um the demands for funding are, could actually get quite large compared to uh some of the some of these numbers that we're that are floating around at the moment i guess how optimistic are you that i mean clearly as you say university is not top of the the treasury's worry list but do you think there's a point in the next couple of months where the kind of you know the dam might break and and actually we're going to see you know a much more urgent need and do you how optimistic are you that the treasury might respond to that yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think that needs growing every day. And, you know, we've got this lockdown review week of the 15th of February, I think, and it should be an announcement week of the 22nd about what, what, what happens next. And I think, you know, if that, if that results in a much longer period for the vast majority of students staying online, I think the financial pressures just grow exponentially. Uh, I mean, we're going to need, we're going to need more, more money and support. I mean, there are, um, and by that, I mean, both students and, and universities, there are, um, la- you know, there are tens of millions of pounds uh, or hundreds of millions across the sector already being given in, 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 in rent refunds, rent rebates. There's rising cost pressures. Um, you know, universities are, are finding a way to cope with that at the moment. Um, but students are going to need more support. Universities are going to need more support if the longer this goes on. Right. Earlier this week, we published new research with Pearson on students' learning experience during COVID-19. Um, Alison, what jumped out at you from this piece of work? Well, I, th- I thought it was really interesting sort of Pearson wonky research. I mean, it highlighted um, student concerns about some aspects of their online learning experience during the pandemic. I thought it really clearly identified the views on what aspects of that learning experience they were missing out on. It wasn't so much about the the standard of the teaching. It was more about the variety and breadth of sort of learning activities. Um, I thought the other really interesting bit was the the survey also signalled that students were actually very open to retaining many aspects of the online learning. So although they weren't certainly happy about some of the aspects at the moment during the pandemic, they were saying there actually were some good bits as well and bits that they would like to see continue post-pandemic. So it kind of points to some interesting questions about, you know, what does the future learning kind of offer um, off students look like? Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the big takeaways, I think. I mean, Natalie, I, I wonder, um, looking looking at this, it's clear that students want to keep the discussion forms, the recorded lectures, online tests. Um, it's just that they don't want that to be the only way they engage. Um, and I, I wonder whether um, there's thinking going into what next year looks like, given that this is essentially kind of... Um, you know, the, the new normal in terms of what, what students might expect. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think any university potentially around the world is thinking that provision will just go back to how it was prior to the pandemic. Uh, there will be lots of thinking across different departments and do- different university management in terms of what aspects of this this time we want to take forward, what have we learnt, what are some of the, the the things that enhance the offer, enhance the support we can give to students and how can we take that forward. But that's just going to have to be balanced with, you know, managing workloads, managing expectations uh, and and really sort of getting the, the right balance, I guess, between all of these things. But I do think there's lots of aspects of the way we have changed online provision to online support services and so on that have been, you know, really you know, an excellent addition and and those sorts of things. I think we want to continue to support and, and ensure that they can be improved and optimised going forward. Mm. And, and I mean, the other part of the, the good news from it, though, was, was that, you know, people are happy, students are happy generally with things like the responsiveness of um, of staff and and and, uh, and the other academics and people they come across in the institution, which is obviously, I think, speaks to kind of the, the hard work that people are doing inside universities at um, at the moment, but it's the the the, the where things get dicey are are kind of the the wraparound, the enriching experience, the engagement, the interaction, and um and and you know we'd argue that that's a 
a fundamental part of the of the learning experience and that's going to be quite difficult to catch up isn't it Alistair? Yeah I mean, I mean university staff are just in amazing efforts and pulling out all the stops to make sure that that students are, are still learning and are still supported to learn and I was really pleased to see that, that there's a lot of recognition for for, for for that kind of you know both one-to-one support and, and that, that you know that the core learning is is being um, delivered, but we've had all these stop and start restrictions. We've had, um, you know, a really disruptive year. And what we're continually hearing from students is they're missing out on the wider student experience they would normally enjoy and benefit from a normal year. And and for me, that's where we've got to focus in the in the weeks ahead. And we were talking before about you know um, how can university, what can universities do, what can government do to to support students. And I think there's a whole load of things we've got to think about about how do we make sure that this this lost experience, this narrow experience that's so important on students' development, um, all of the things from teamwork and communications and leadership and all the things that really enrich your you know your 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 student experience um how do we make up for it um and i think that's got to be the 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 big focus in the weeks ahead i I saw i saw that the governor pointed a catch-up staff but it doesn't seem like that's that that seems much more focused at schools where there's clearly an issue and the public debate hasn't hasn't really kind of caught on to the fact that we've also got a similar issue for universities it's it's different and complicated in other ways but it, it it is an issue i wonder whether the sector should appoint a catch-up czar, you know, maybe a brilliant, well-respected, higher education academic, someone who's done some serious research, someone who has real clout, you know, some maybe a friend of the show like Claire Callender or, or one of these sorts of people who could pull together a commission and um, really help the sector work together to to solve this issue. Because it isn't just a kind of institution by institution issue, is it? This is absolutely a, a cross-sector issue and, and, and might speak to a kind of cross-sector initiative. Yeah, and I think it's a, n- a nice idea. I... I- I'm I'm a bit worried that quite a lot of the debate on catch-up is too narrowly focused on the the sort of core learning and sort of learning outcomes. And there's some real there's some real problems there. You know, if you're on a course with practical or practice-based elements, you need access to specialist facilities, labs, you know, studio spaces, other things. Um, and you know, we, those students will need to be back on campuses to be able to do that. So there's a really acute problem there. Um, but actually, I think there's a a wider problem about for all students about missing out on experience. And and we we need to think about you know how do we provide opportunities. Um, it'll be over the next year. This won't be something you can quickly catch up with in the next few weeks. But how do you, you know do extra cultural and sportling activities? You know volunteering. How do you get student societies up and running? How do you um, offer I don't know additional um, short courses or field trips or you know all these kind of things. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a year effort. So we've talked a bit about the headline satisfaction rates, but what's really fascinating to me is the split between the different student experiences. The students who do not feel their academic experience has been a good quality of overall do tend to be those that have had an all online experience or have um, moved to an online experience. Now, there's lots of ed tech people around social media that will uh tell you that the events of this year means that students will be expecting more online and uh, blended uh, provision in the future. Uh, to me, it doesn't look as much like that. I think we're looking towards a backlash. Right. Earlier this week, we worked with a collection of student unions to do a serious piece of work uh, into freedom of speech at uh, on campus and the role of students' unions um, after lots of criticism over the last months and years. Um, Natalie, what jumped out at you here? 
Well, this freedom of speech issue, I think, is you know the issue that that seems to never go away. I guess while we were all settling into lockdown 3.0, we had sort of David Davis introducing his private members bill, and he was saying that freedom of speech was under threat in universities and calling for us to be liable for fines if we didn't comply with our sort of duty to promote free speech. And we had Michael Barber also giving his sort of houses of wisdom speech again calling saying universities were guilty of groupthink and we needed to do more to protect um, freedom of speech so it's an issue that that keeps on bubbling around but I think it you know it is good that uh, and timely that Wonky teamed up with a number of student unions to sort of think quite creatively about the issue and and sort of think it in quite a practical way about things student unions can do to try and you know address the issues and and really sort of put in systems and processes and and protocols that help unions to ensure that there's sort of a diversity of speakers on campus and and that freedom of speech is protected. I, I mean, Alistair, so we, we were interested to see whether kind of um, leaning into this debate and coming up with some positive proposals would actually help move us forward. Do you, do you think it might do? Yeah, I think I think it might do. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right to, to, to focus on what sort of practical steps um, could help. And I thought some of the, the suggestions were really, really creative and really, really sensible. Um, I think we've got to got to realise here that even though um, the evidence shows that there are you know a very small number of cases where you can really clearly evidence that that freedom of speech has been significantly constrained, I think we've also got to recognise that there's a real perception issue here, and that that in itself is a problem. You know, if, if people think that lots are there are lots of um, uh, problems here, and um, we've got to address that as well. So I think I think these kind of practical creative suggestions uh, are really are really helpful. And, you know, this won't go away unless universities and student unions are seen to be uh, recognising that there are concerns and taking some action. DK, just just, just kind of humour me. Why do you think that people think that there's a problem with, with free speech at universities? Well, because people are told that there's a problem with free speech at um universities is the difficult answer and I also although this is a great report and I want to come in in, in, a, in a, a couple of seconds to go through a couple of the recommendations which I think are fantastic I do have a theory that nothing that we say or do about free speech on campus is ever going to be enough it's been a, a debate that's been rumbling on since the 60s and 70s and even before that and it will continue in the future and I just don't know what the response is that keeps people happy. I mean, in terms of the report, there's some really positive stuff. I like the idea of using the University of Chicago definition from the Committee of Freedom of Expression that actually defines what uh, free speech actually is, which is really, really important in this debate where it can mean different things to different people. I like particularly the fact that we spotted that a lot of uh, providers, they don't have many external speakers. They don't have people coming in to talk to students, uh, to introduce them to new ideas, to new perspectives. And I really like the fact that we have got a commitment to increase the volume and uh, diversity of debates. I think that's really, really important. I just don't know what exactly it is it is that people who are complaining about a lack of free speech on campus actually want to see happen. And I think that is really what's um, letting the debate down. I mean, Natalie, how high on the agenda has this been in your university? Well, I mean, I mean obviously, freedom of speech is a, a critical aspect of all universities. And, you know, we at Hallam and, and at all universities want to ensure that, you know, there's, you know, debate on campus, that there's free-flowing views, that there's diverse opinions, but in a way that we ensure doesn't sort of... Uh, you know, 
lead to harassment or any any sort of um, treatment that that is offensive or abusive. And all universities are, you know, absolutely keen to ensure that 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 happens. But I think, you know, I do agree with DK here that freedom of speech is an issue that continually comes up again and again and again. But I do think it's far from a crisis on campus as the way it is sometimes projected. Um, You know, I was really struck by, you know, just six events in in, out of you know ten thousand events across universities were cancelled in two thousand and nineteen twenty so that doesn't seem to me to be a, a massive crisis on campus. We do need to ensure that there are other systems in place to to protect freedom of speech um, but i I actually think that dK's point just there about the fact that there there maybe isn't enough speech occurring on campus is something that's perhaps more interesting to focus on. How do we get more events, more speakers, more opportunities for students, whether they're doing nursing or, you know, engineering or artificial intelligence, that they get to hear speakers from different perspectives and different points of view and, and, and are exposed to that kind of ch- critical and, and challenging thinking across the spectrum. Mm. I mean, one of the things we've seen coming out of government in the last few months is is uh, some messaging around student unions that has caused a bit of bit of alarm. Um, not seen since since really uh, since before David Willits took on the the higher education brief when he you know really tried to normalise the relationship between the Conservative Party and student unions after a few decades of a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and I think I mean, Alistair, I, one one of the things here is is that you know I think student unions left feeling well you know are we going to be kind of the next scapegoat for a lot of problems and you know looking to the sector to to push back a bit with them on on this question and give student unions and the student sector kind of the full support and and recognize the value of the work they do because they can't make that case just by themselves yeah i I think that's fair and um, mark you know i'm a i'm a huge supporter of student unions and i think they're doing an incredible job i mean you know clearly these are challenging issues that, that need to be tackled by universities and student unions working together um, but actually more widely the contribution of student unions uh, particularly in this pandemic all the support they're providing as students is is remarkable so so i mean i'm absolutely in the camp where universities and student unions need to work hand in hand on these issues so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the monkey show via apple podcast or your favorite android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on the Wonky Show, drop us an email at team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Natalie, Alistair, DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe, stay wonky. Wonky.